It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and with you are your hosts, Stuart Sims. And Anthony Campolo. Our episode this week is called Original Versions of Famous Tracks. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun one, because something funny happens sometimes in music where... Uh, well, we'll talk about it in a second. Before we get to the actual topic of the episode, though. Preview. I'm, I'm besiding myself. I'm knocking my... Let me, let me interrupt myself before I finish. Uh... They're they're just. I found some things this week. I was listening around the some internet. Interesting tracks. Yeah, I, I, I found cast- them very interesting. <laughs> I, I, I liked them. Yeah, I was I was casting around. I was casting around the internet, and so uh, I found some things. I shared them. I shared them with Anthony, and he really liked them. And so we thought we'd share them with y'all here at the top of the episode. So this is just a, a few things uh, I found recently that I've uh, been enjoying. Thought you might enjoy. The first one is from a, a singer songwriter named uh, LP which is for Laura Pergolizzi and what else can you tell us uh, about her so she has written songs for a lot of famous artists she's written for Cher Rihanna uh, the Backstreet Boys and Christina Aguilera and she's one of those artists who has also tried to break through with a, a solo career as well and so this is one of her own songs that she recorded under her own name which is LP yeah, and it's from a couple years ago, and it was pretty huge in uh, about a dozen and a half countries. Yeah, it, it topped the charts, went to number one in about 15 different countries, all around the Scandinavian countries, a, a lot of the Eastern European countries. It was, a, it was a really strange mix in a lot of you know, um, European countries. So millions countries. of listeners, just mm-hmm. not a whole lot here in the U.S., yeah, it, it got into like around the top 40 or so in, in the U.S., so it wasn't a total flop, but it didn't kind of break through the way it did in so many other places. And not only is this, for me, this song terrific, her voice is really compelling. She really knows how to use it very well, so she's a very effective and expressive singer. The version we're going to play for you here in a second is a clip from the uh, the album version, the studio version, but also online on the website uh, at loosefilter.com, where this episode is posted and we have the playlist with links. I linked to uh, a YouTube uh, video of a live studio recording, a live set of this uh, that I think is even more effective than the studio version. But um, we're going to play a, a bit from you from this track, uh, like we said, Lost on You. And before we play it, I just want you to hear the, I want to say the lyrics before you listen to it, because there's so much poetry in the lyrics too. This is kind of the verse that you're going to hear of this track. And I love the lyrics as much as I love the song, as much as I love the performance of the song. Wishing I could see the machinations, understand the toil of expectations in your mind. Hold me like you never lost your patience. Tell me that you love me more than hate me all the time, and you're still mine. And then it goes on from there, but uh, you'll hear that verse, and then she goes into the chorus. Wishing I could see the machinations, understand the toil of expectations in your mind.
pretty powerful stuff. It's um it's great because it's a type of song that can appeal to pretty much anyone, but also if you're someone who is really into, you know, good lyrics and and really passionate songwriting, it it comes through really strongly as well, so it, it has such broad appeal because it it cuts so deep. The next thing I stumble onto is a little bit different from LP from her work. Uh this is Ray. Am I pronouncing that right? Did we figure this out? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, yeah. I, that's my that's, R-E-I. Yeah, R-E-I. A Japanese, another uh, woman who is a Japanese, uh, from Japan, Japanese singer, songwriter, also an extraordinary guitarist. Yeah, she has a really interesting life story. So she started singing and getting into music from a very young age when she was only seven years old. And it says in third grade, she became addicted to Alicia Keys and Usher. And so she had this you know, crazy 90s R&B phase that had a huge impact on her. And then it says in junior high, she went to a school that didn't allow their students to perform art activities, which is pretty interesting. And so she was secretly working with a teacher to make music kind of on the side and then eventually had to transfer to, to another school that was going to let her do what she wanted to do because people around her start seeing, oh, this girl's really, really talented. Really, we should maybe yeah. not have to do this in secret. <laughs> yeah, this is a little bit ridiculous. And then she has a modeling career and an acting career and then changes talent agencies and says, I'm going to do music instead because this isn't working out so well. So that's where she is now, making insane virtuoso guitar music yeah. after all of that. Well, and what I love, okay, so she's a terrific guitarist. Uh, she has... Uh, uh, a deeper stylistic influence uh, than obviously just Alicia Keys and Usher. Uh, she has a deeper stylistic influence she's developed since uh, her childhood than Alicia Keys and Usher. But I also love the way that she really explores the guitar as uh, an instrument, as an acoustic instrument, as an electronic instrument, and she just gets so many varied sounds out of the out of the the gear and the hardware and the instrument itself not just how she plays it and what she's writing to play on it yeah on top of the the r&b i would imagine there was a lot of that 90s alternative rock weird experimental guitar stuff that probably would have also been seeping through at the time and, and influencing her yeah so this is a track from ray that i just really dig it's called coco <laughs> Betting everybody listening was disappointed when that clip started fading out. <laughs> I just love that track. And uh, check her out online. She's linked on uh, the post of, of this episode. And so on. R-E-I is her name. I love anything that can be really weird and really poppy at the same time. And she packs it so dense with energy. I don't know how she gets so much energy into the sound, but uh, there it is. Good stuff. Good stuff. The last uh, intro thing I wanted to share was this uh, wonderful uh, soprano, Janine Debeek. 
Trinidadian uh, vocalist. And she actually sang here in Central California in an opera production of Dead Man Walking a couple of years ago. Uh, but her career, as and you will hear why, is rapidly kind of blowing up and she's getting more and more in demand and finding a bigger and bigger audience. And this is, uh, I mean, we'll play a couple short excerpts from me from a very famous aria from Messiah, the oratorio Messiah, Rejoice Greatly, that requires the singer to do what is called melismatic singing or melisma, meaning uh, really technical passages on a single vowel sound, like like an instrumentalist would do, but you got to do that with your voice and you don't have words to help you out. It's on all like a single Vowel sound, really virtuosic, very difficult to do well, especially if you take uh, Baroque music the more at the more brisk tempos it should be taken at, which this performance does. So, so this is not repertoire that we would normally maybe explore or share on the podcast. I mean, it's certainly universally well-known and well-explored handles Messiah, but this performance is so singular and so compelling and so distinctive. I think that she could um, probably sell me, you know, air in the middle of (laughs) an open field or something. She's so convincing. Uh, Is a couple excerpts. The first excerpt is going to show you kind of her technical prowess. And I'd also recommend uh, checking out the video as well because she really brings a lot with her expressiveness, her her facial expressions, and when she's singing. Oh, absolutely! So the first clip we'll just play them back to back for you. Uh, is is we'll show you we'll, we'll let you hear that that virtuosic technical uh, ability, and then the second uh, clip will show you how exquisitely she uses her voice in more you know in 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 more legato, more more. Uh, uh, slower kind of music. Canto. Uh, yeah. Well, the, yeah. The problem is, I'm getting, I'm stuttering because I'm thinking about how it sounds, and I, I, we just need to play it. So here are the clips. <laughs> I have a lot more to say about how amazing that is, but it would probably take the rest of the episode. So we'll just leave it at that. The name is uh, Janine Debeek. That's D-E space B-I-Q-U-E. Highly recommended. So, Anthony. Yes. Tell us about this episode. This is uh, uh, original versions of famous tracks. Original versions of famous tracks. That would be a track that you may know, probably know, if we consider it famous. And there was a track that came before it. So these are not just uh, songs that are 
more f- remakes that are more famous than the original. We're not talking that broad. Uh-huh. We're talking about really famous songs that most people don't realize are not the original version. Yes, because it has supplanted the original in the cultural consciousness. They just think of this song, they only, they only think of there being one version of it, and so whatever that version is, even if it's not the original, they may think it is. Or in a couple of cases, the songwriter, original songwriter slash performer, uh, was not successful in getting a recorded version released, or a recorded version was released and wasn't very successful. Yeah, it was pretty obscure, or just didn't yeah. really like find the right audience at the right time. So we have eight of these that we we sort of called out of our possibilities. We think well, a lot of them are going to surprise everybody. I think most of them surprised me. Yeah, uh, uh-huh. for sure. And normally I'm pretty. I try to be pretty savvy about knowing if any you know a recorded song or track I enjoy is is a remake or. Uh, another version and uh, of course always looking at who wrote this who are the songwriters if it's especially if it's not the performers because what other performers maybe maybe has that songwriter written for or have recorded that songwriter's music etc so these i think to a track maybe i okay i can say one of them i know for sure i knew wasn't the original but i think for me the other seven were it was news to me yeah, I think for me, maybe two of them I was already familiar with. But yeah, it's really fun just to hear the original versions after already having such a, a clear idea of what we think of as the song because it has a different dimension to it. Some of them, they're a little bit rougher. Some of them are actually more polished and were made rougher. It's, it's So it's cool to kind of see that they were all modified in, in different ways, just kind of tweaked a little bit to to get them to catch fire. And my favorite ones are where you see the uh, the style genre is kind of tweaked over the essence of the song is the same, but it would be in completely different sections of the record store. Uh-huh, yeah. Same track, same tune. And the, the fans of each might hate each other. <laughs> right. Like Jeff and Britta arguing over uh, The Red Door and uh, Beale it's Street. the or same place. Yeah. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll play you uh, a clip of the famous version. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that just about everybody listening is going to know all eight of the tracks we got yeah, for you. Maybe you've heard in passing. Or... Uh, how could you have not yeah. heard most of these? Okay, so let's just dive right in. Here's the first one. That was Hey Mickey by Tony Basil, 1981. And this was a slight modification of a track that came out two years earlier that was called Kitty. And it was swapped gender-wise. It was by a band, Racy, in 1979. So this is Kitty. Kitty, 
I had no idea <laughs> as many times in my life as I've heard Amy hey, that it wasn't. I mean, I, I thought it was a one hit wonder, which it is, but I thought it was an, a, a, the only version of that tune that was out there. I didn't realize it came from the other song. And it seems like all you need to do to go from a pretty cool track, late 70s sort of riff on maybe a, a what? What is that? Like a surf rock sound or something? I'm not- uh, it, I would call it almost like a post-punk a little bit a little that's bit where you, yeah it's like post-punk kind of bled into new wave to a certain extent so it's racy made an interesting track there but it seems like if you add cheerleaders and hand claps you have an unforgettable one hit wonder then two years <laughs> and, later two and it also later. added the hey mickey you're so fine you're so fine you blow my mind that wasn't in the original so that alone really hooked a lot of people i think you're right so just by the adding like a power kind of hook of the hook it's kind of like um the cheer it's uh, the cheer right the respect was kind of like the same thing because that was otis redding and right. then uh aretha franklin came in and was like let me add this let me add a hook thing. and it's gonna make yeah. it iconic so there's our there's our first one. If you don't know the racy version though, the track Kitty, it's really, it's a great track. It's really worth listening to. The next one is Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, which most people know by Cindy Lauper. That was from 1983, and the original was Robert Hazard in 1979. Talk about the uh, bl- the blend from punk into new wave. There it is right there back to back, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. The Robert Hazard. Now, that's an unreleased demo he made in 79, so he never actually was able to release Girls Just Want to Have Fun, but his version sounds real punk to me. Yeah, definitely. That's very like Buzzcocks. They were doing the same thing right around that, and they were trying to be poppier. So it makes sense that there would have been people who would have been listening to these tracks and thinking, you know, there's something going on here that could reach a much wider audience if you sand the edges a, right. a bit. Add a DX7, yeah. put it in a, a an iconic pop female voice like Cindy Lauper. Mm-hmm. I mean, she and certainly her vocal performance did uh, as much as anything to make this track, you know, kind of the elevated to the status it has in our cultural imagination memory, certainly. But... Uh, I love the Hazard version, and and it's like you mentioned with the Racy, uh, with Kitty, with the one we just listened to before this one. I wonder if there was something in the late 70s that record companies would get demos, they'd hear acts, and if they sounded like punk, they were like, nope, we're moving on from that. We're moving on from that. It's New Wave, it's whatever. And they didn't pay attention to the fact that they were really good songs. Yeah, uh-huh. It was definitely really Until easy. Until a couple years later. Yeah, I'm sure it was really easy to pigeonhole a lot of those bands and 
the ones who are who are writing songs like that were probably like, hey, no, this is actually this is really accessible stuff, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we're not trying to be the Sex Pistols here. Yeah, and they're and, and they're actual you know well crafted songs. Yeah. And yeah. Oh man, I do love that the guitar riff, bum bottom, that it was translated so kind of seamlessly into uh, like a synth lick and, and an iconic kind of pop. Yeah, that one it, it's really a great kind of turnover from that super punky kind of style and then them just saying oh we can arrange this differently and this the whole thing's there already yeah keep keep the material keep yeah. the song mm-hmm. turn the dial on on you know the sounds themselves totally new genre goes back to my thesis i've mentioned often on the show genres of fiction once you get below <laughs> the surface so what's next next we've got the very famous tainted love by soft cell bump bump <laughs> You know, everybody listening right now, that is what your brains did. And if we hadn't done it, you'd have been thinking, why didn't they, they should have made that sound. It's like mentioning Law and Order and everybody thinks, bow, bow, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Everybody hears that, that Reptane of Love. This is another one that really shocked me. Had no idea. Wasn't the original version this of the song. This is one that I, I the original remembered was it. even more well-known. Yeah, for some reason, I did, I feel like, knew this was a cover. I think I may have been watching one of those, like, VH1 shows back in the day where they were doing the same topic and it came up. But this one is... We get all uh, our stuff from old VH1. Yeah, really. just, yeah. I, I love the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> so we have li- the same 30 seconds or the same beginning chunk of each recording. The, uh, the recording it's from is uh gloria jones is the artist right yep gloria jones and this was 1964 so this is a lot older this is a more this is a bigger gap to bridge stylistically than girls just want to have fun this is uh r&b 60s soul yeah they got turned into this weird new wave new like, wave dark synth pop <laughs> kind of thing okay can we can we really can we just listen to a back-to-back yeah all right. okay sometimes i feel i've got to run away i've got to Get away from the pain you drive into the heart of me The love we share seems to go nowhere And I've lost Sometimes I feel I've got to That's just a testament to how good that song is, because those are pretty drastically different. They're they're different tempos. They're totally different instrumentation. One's completely electronic. Different modes. Yeah, yeah, it's different keys. Yeah, it's really, it's awesome how they were able to tell that they could take it from here and take it to there, and it was actually going to pan out the way they wanted it to and not just sound totally ridiculous. That's a big distance to bridge, stylistically speaking. Absolutely. And for the result to become, again the iconic version of this song in our imagination ever since 40 years later. Yeah. And so the way this came to be was it 
flopped when it was released in the 60s, but then throughout the 70s, it started to get revived a little bit uh, by DJs in clubs who were starting to spin like Motown-influenced kind of records. And then the one of the people from Soft Cell was at one of these clubs that spun the record and just heard it. it was like, oh, that's that's an interesting track. Let's take that. And that's and there you go. And there it is. Yeah. Wow. The next pair we have for you, I is one my my maybe kind of foggy. I'm not sure if I knew that list. Uh, but this one is remarkable to me for how little distance there is between the original version and the iconic version. Yeah, I think you could probably play the original for some people, and they at first wouldn't even notice a difference. They would just think it's the other one. Yeah. So yeah. let's we'll just play these clips back to back, and then we'll talk about them. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. I knew he must have been about 17 He was going strong Playing my favorite song And I could tell it wouldn't be long That he was with me Yeah, me And I could tell it wouldn't be long That he was with me similar sounds instrument wise really it's just like a slightly different sounding guitar and some one has the hand claps a little bit louder than the others but it's almost identical in a lot of ways we should say that uh the first version uh joan jett and the black hearts and and then the other one was the arrows and that was in 1975 jonah jett was in 1982 so a little bit of space in between them just just like a half dozen seven years uh in between those two the Joan Jett version 2, to me, absolutely sounds like straight-ahead 80s studio rock. Yeah, it's a little more compressed. Yeah, and it's it's uh, multi-tracked, you know, yeah. separately mm-hmm. tracked, really, like, that that sterile kind of sound environment. But the uh, the Arrows version is much more like a let's-get-around-the-microphone band recording. So, that, I mean, that the aesthetic of the recording yeah. is a little mm-hmm. bit different. And I think that's interesting to me because it's the difference in the sort of overarching aesthetic of rock in the 70s versus the 80s it was dirtier and grittier and a little more with its folk and blues roots in the 70s i think Mm -hmm. and became much more polished and clean with you know producers like uh mutt lang and you know compression and all these sounds gating all stuff's going on all the gizmos Uh, and all the gizmos and the uh guitar sounds they were playing but it got to be a lot cleaner sounding in that sense uh sterile not in a critical way but um uh, definitely the sort of general aesthetic of the sound of rock change. And those two tracks kind of, to me, I hadn't thought of it till we just listened to those clips, uh, typify that. Yeah, absolutely. 
there's an interesting little story behind this one as well. They the arrows were given a deal for a, a TV show, like one of those you know monkeys. I'm a, I'm a band with a TV show kind of thing, and um, it was while they were doing that show that Jonah Jet was uh, touring. Jonah around. Jet is that Joan Jet's sister? Uh, yeah, Joan Jet. Sorry, uh, <laughs> Joan Jet uh, was touring England with the Runaways and saw the saw the show. And then she was inspired and originally recorded a version with uh, Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols in 1979, and then recorded another version with her band, the Blackhearts, in 1981. So this went through a couple different iterations before she finally got it to the point where she wanted it to be. And then it was a number one hit single for seven weeks. Massive success. All that honing paid off, I guess, to get to the right distilled version of this track. Uh, And though I say, you know, I mentioned that these two versions are are like kind of right next to each other. There's not that much that's different. Uh, It is really interesting to me how the small differences make Joan Jett's version really pop and kind of hit you in your chest in a way. Yeah, it's pretty uh, clear why one version ended up winning out over the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do we have next? Next up, uh, this is a song that I know from a commercial, mostly. (laughs) Probably most people now, that's why it stuck around, yeah. This one is Venus. It was first recorded in 1970 by Shocking Blue, and then again in 1986 by Bananarama. Some of you may be thinking, 1970? Uh, I'm guessing that a lot of us, this is the version we know. This is Bananarama. I don't think there's a band name that says 1980s more than Bananarama. But, yes. <laughs> but a great club track, great dance track, great use of a, a synth bass loop as a beat. Yeah, it's, as, it's, very, know, it's a, very of its time, but, it's, but it still works. It's, it, it's you know, true to itself. <laughs> Didn't know it was from 1970 from a Dutch band, Shocking Blue is the original, and one of the members of the band is the songwriter. Robbie Van Leeuwen. This is what that version sounds like. She's got it. Yeah, baby, she's got it. 
when that first guitar part kicks in, it makes me think of Pinball Wizard. Sounds a lot like that. It it does, but this is like full on psychedelic rock, right? And the mm-hmm. singer's kind of doing her best, Grace Slick, and uh, I mean. It's so of its time, but I love the original version so much. Now that I've I've uh, discovered it personally, yeah, the original version has a has a lot of character to it. I'm a I'm a really big fan of it, and I like that era and that kind of sound where it's that time when rock musicians were bleeding into psychedelic, and they weren't you know entirely sure which ways to meld it. So some of it came out super weird, some of it came out super poppy. But um, there's always a lot of interesting stuff happening there. Always interesting textures and kind of soundscapes (laughs) they were creating. And this is another one that has to bridge a fair amount of distance stylistically to be, um, man, what would you, Bananarama? I mean, it's pop. It's definitely 80s pop. It's uh, it's not synth pop, even though it's mostly electronic. Uh, So the the sound, you know, kind of palette is totally changed in the Bananarama version. It's a group vocal. It's mostly. considered dance pop on their, their Wikipedia dance page. Dance pop. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly a group vocal. Um, it's a lot more beat oriented. Yeah, you can definitely tell it was made more for a club. So they shifted the energy. They shifted all the sounds. So a, a fairly big transformation for it still kind of being the same song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really interesting, especially one next to the other, I think. And the next pair for me is a really cool contrast because the styles of each track here are far apart, but they actually sound a lot alike. Okay, that sounded like a really dumb thing to say. I know. I know that sounded like maybe you the dumbest thing. You need to get your, get your Zen said. Buddhism cap on, the, on first. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, okay, so this track is Come On, Feel the Noise, which I know as a child of the 80s, <laughs> And, you know, the studio label hard rock hair bands of the 80s. Quiet Riot. Quiet Riot. Oh, man. Come on, feel the noise. Girls, rock your boys. 1983. 1983. And boy, did we rock to it. Didn't know 10 years before, Slade. Rock band, Irish? Uh, Yeah. Uh Irish rock band. Kind of one of these party bands, almost. Like a parliament style. Wore crazy costumes, colorful uh, outlandish costumes and had a lot of kind of group vocals on uh, choruses and things. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with them. I know that they've got a pretty big following and they've had their music covered by a, a huge range of bands. So you've had like Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, The Clash, and then Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot. They they have all called them an influence. So they definitely made a huge impact on the people who did hear them. So this is Quiet Riot's version from 1983, which to me sounds so specifically early, mid-80s heavy metal. Uh, Oh, yeah. uh, And distinctively so. So this is Quiet Riot. I wouldn't have thought that you, we could have found any recording from 1973 that would sound any version of like that sound. Yeah, because that would have made them way ahead of their time. Way ahead, and it would have meant they invented some stuff that hadn't been invented right, yet, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Except this, that's what I meant to say with that seemingly dumb thing, but not dumb thing that I said earlier, at least I hope not dumb, that 
that it it if you can listen past the lead singer's voice and how that's the first big connection is that the lead singer's voice is crunchy and gravelly in the same way uh, as the lead singers and the kind of what became kind of an iconic metal thing uh-huh, in yeah. the 80s to the singer's voices um, and the energy in the group vocal, the group chorus in Slade is the same energy as the shouting in the chorus of the quiet riot. So it just makes you feel like you need to sing along with it. It feels weird to just listen to yeah, it. Yeah. So even though the sounds aren't quite that, they, they feel so much the same. So, okay, let's see if you think it, think the same thing or, or, or if I'm totally uh, making things up here, this is uh, come on, feel the noise. 
wanted to use the song themselves. BC Jean recorded her own version, but it was... And this song, we should say, If I Were a Boy. Yeah, If I Were Beyonce a Boy. Which Beyonce made very famous. Uh-huh. And so BC Jean recorded her own version, but it was rejected by the record label, and Beyonce decided to release it herself. And there was a little bit of uh, bad blood there at first, but apparently they, they worked it out, and it's all good now. <laughs> Here is Beyonce's version. If I And then if you go online, it is not released uh, commercially, and so you can't like find it on uh, you know streaming services or download. But there is a studio recording, a live studio recording BC Jean did uh, of the song uh, herself, and uh, this is that version. If I were a boy. like she really liked bright eyes <laughs> and other early 2000s emo <laughs> i think uh what's interesting to me about that pair is that they obviously sound very different you know uh beyonce's is uh pop oriented and it's much more uh refined and uh, uh electronic and produced and uh and BC Jean's version is, is it's a live studio version, acoustic guitar, two singers. Uh, her delivery is a lot more singer songwriter, so immediate immediate feeling to it. But with those differences in mind, I think they're essentially the same interpretation of the song. Right. Yeah. Because they're still feeling, they're same. still going for the same artistic goal. They're just uh, attempting to get at it from different angles. Yeah, absolutely. And so these are two that I think, uh, though they sound quite different. I think the inverse dumb thing that I said just a second ago. Though they sound quite different. <laughs> Beyond the sounds themselves, uh, I think those versions are very similar. Uh, and then we have a last pair for you. What's This one surprised me the most. This one I was very surprised because it's so iconic and well-known. This is Black Magic Woman by Santana, which easily one of his most famous well-known tracks and to be done originally by another such famous band Fleetwood Mac. This one's interesting to me. I too, like you was very surprised and we're probably letting our age show both of us there. Yeah, of course, lot, yeah. uh, many of you listening may be thinking, how did you not know that was a Fleetwood? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. But okay. 
This is why it's interesting to me, because for many people, I don't think you and I are alone on this, Santana's version is so iconic. Yeah, it's considered one of his most famous tracks. That easily. it displaced in the popular kind of imagination mm-hmm. a very famous version by a very famous band. Yeah, because this one was on the charts. wasn't a chart topper for Fleetwood Mac. It, it got to I mean, number... it was early work, right? Yeah, it was 1968. So one thing that some people probably don't know is that Fleetwood Mac is mostly known for the group that involved uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, but they had already been a band for about seven years before that going through all sorts of different lineups. So this was one of their very first lineups and Peter Green was the person who wrote the song. We'll play the clips for you back to back, but what is going to be missing, what you won't hear from the Santana version is the first minute which is maybe the most iconic part of the song. The guitar solo, the atmospheric, super long introduction, great. The part that's vintage Santana. Absolutely. And that's how I think he made the song so deeply his own. His version is great, but it's kind of the same energy to me as the original, um, stylistically and expressively. But that first minute, we're not going to play the first minute. It's, uh, you know, and if you ever had Guitar Hero 3, you probably gave yourself hand and wrist cramps trying to learn to, on hard and expert to play this first minute of this track. But uh, uh, when you get to the song proper, it's interesting to me, and you wouldn't think of Santana and Fleetwood Mac as yeah, even sounding remotely similar. Right. So here, here, here are the last, uh, the last two clips for you. Uh, black Magic Woman. Got a black magic woman. Got a black magic woman. I've got a black magic woman. Got me so blind I can't see. That she's a black magic woman. She's trying to make a devil out of me. Don't turn your Got a black magic woman. Got a black magic woman. Yes, I got a black magic woman Got me so blind I can't see That she's a black magic woman And she's trying to make a devil out of me Like you said, many people play that in Guitar Hero. That's definitely one that I always enjoy playing. It's it's cool how there can be, like, you would expect that to be something by Santana it kind of has that sort of feel to it, but then... When you find out it was actually from Fleetwood Mac, it kind of can change your perception of like, oh, you know, you don't necessarily have to be quote unquote Santana to write this song, you know. And interesting, the differences between those recordings, a a rock recording, the first one, mm-hmm. I mean, with other influences and the second one, what Latin jazz infused rock? Yeah, a little bit. Salsa infused rock or, you know, um, uh fantastic stylistic shift but it's got to be a drag right to be Fleetwood Mac you get this track out there in 1968 and you're like man we got a solid that's a solid song that was gonna have some legs I hope 1970 <laughs> yeah I wonder I wonder or if they just see it as a synergy that they can play it at their own concert that's everyone true. will love it because everyone knows it you know who knows that's, yeah. that's true uh so that's the episode that's what we have for you uh There may be lots of other examples out there that you think are interesting. If you want to send any our way or any other feedback, please drop us a line at loosefilter at gmail.com. You can find us online, loosefilter.com, or on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. 
Uh, and you can download the podcast, subscribe wherever quality podcasts are offered on iTunes or Stitcher or any of another uh, dozens of platforms. Anthony, anything else to add? No. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Thanks for listening.